0: Hello, my name is Steve Brown, and I'm the worship leader at Vintage Faith Church. At Vintage Faith, we believe the Word of God is what changes and transforms a person. We hope you enjoy the next 30 to 40 minute sermon of the Word of God being proclaimed and explained. Enjoy the message. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would sanctify us in truth. And we know that your word is truth. Father, we thank you for your word, for its sweetness, for allowing us to have an appetite to digest it. Father, we ask that the Spirit would be at work, as Steve already prayed, that, that as we dig into this word together, that we would see uh, the beauty of your plan for uh, interpersonal relationships for believers, and especially marriage. Father, that we would see that Peter is giving us the hard truth of, of how we tend to want to interact with our spouses and is preaching the opposite to our hearts so that we can stand holy and undefiled as your royal priesthood both to one another and to the gentiles around us as true israel called out of darkness and into your marvelous light father we know that this calling comes because of the saving work of jesus christ and it's in his name we pray amen, amen. all right Anthony already dispensed of the rumors. (laughs) Uh, It is interesting that this would be um, a text that anyone who is reading ahead would kind of cringe at the the speaking assignment, right? That says something about uh, where we are if we kind of all know, ooh, you know, so, no matter what he says, someone's not going to be happy, right? Um, I had someone recently, uh, you know, file a, a note in the, in the complaint box about uh, why do preachers talk about marriage so much? And uh, hopefully, usually, the answer can be well, if you're just going through a book of the Bible and you get to 1 Peter chapter 3, what are you going to do? All right. I mean, it's, this is the point of the text, right? Um, and so as we preach and teach the whole counsel of God, making sure that we're not uh, just going with what pleases us, you get to a text like 1 Peter 3 or Ephesians 5 or Colossians 3, and you preach, right? You, you say what the Word of God has to say, and... Uh, that should delight our hearts if we are those who are hearers of the word. I, I have uh, not listened to as much of your First Peter series as I, as I often do before I get here. And so I just want to do my own brief intro before we get into this text and say that I, I love this epistle. Uh, it is somehow, I think, interesting that you're doing James on Saturday morning, but I think those two epistles are the most uh, inseparable kind of combination of uh, doctrine and application of any of the epistles to the churches. Right? When you, there is rarely a, an argument within either of those that does not include both a doctrinal uh, uh, backing to a practical application. And that's certainly the case for this text, right? Um, Even more than Paul, Peter here gives the doctrinal whys for how marriage ought to look in a sanctified marriage. And, And last week, you guys started looking at this rolling dialogue of submission. Submit yourselves to governing authorities. Right? Be subject to, is, is the ASV, or the ESV. Be subject to, be subject to, be subject to. Be subject to the governing authorities. Slaves, be subject to your masters. And then you, you come here, and it's likewise. Right? That's, that's Peter's great um, gathering Conjunction, right? Just continuing in the same way, in the same way, in the same way, in the same way. Be subject, be subject, be subject. And so now he takes the 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 bigger picture, the, the macro, be subject to governments, to to working relationships, to to bigger picture personal dynamics, and now he goes straight into uh, the most Micro one on one human interpersonal relationship that exists, which is marriage. And he starts right out with be subject. And it it strikes me that that phrase alone is a countercultural command, right? Just be subject, and we're already cringy. You know, don't tread on me, don't tell me what to do, don't, don't tell me anyone is someone that I need to place my heart, my life, my actions in submission to. But then, uh, for this text, you know, he goes just one step further in the now counter- Culturally unacceptable argument by saying, likewise, have a female be subject to a male, right? Um, so we've got uh, just building cultural tension with this text given where we are today. It's important, of course, to note that this is not some broad blanket statement of. Uh, Of course, not inferiority and superiority. And it's also not a broad blanket question of authority, right? This is specific lady, and note the words, to your own husband, right? Not that all women are subject to all husbands, but that there is a dynamic within marriage. And we just, I, I don't know if that takes the sting out of that argument at all. For some of you, it may not. That's okay. I, 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 I was thinking again, you know, not, not that uh, this was pawned off on me, but how, how interesting it is that I really don't know the dynamics at play. I don't know which side... Of the of the error, any of you might tend to. Right? I don't. I don't know if your background is such that uh, you you see this as a a welcome argument for husbands to be domineering, controlling, patriarchal messes of men in marriages. Or if you come from the other side, which says there can't possibly be an inherent authority submission context within a marriage. I, don't, I really don't know. Uh, this text speaks to both of those errors, though. I'm glad uh, that it's not. I often, when you, when you hear someone uh, preach or teach through this text, through the book of 1 Peter, there's, there's two different sermons or two different lessons for one through six and then verse seven. So I'm thankful that Anthony gave me all seven verses so that I'm not just up here speaking to ladies for the whole time, right? Um, Not because I'm uncomfortable speaking to ladies, but because uh, I want to be able to speak to all of you. But let's start with ladies. (laughs) He says, be subject to your own husbands And the goal of submission, according to Peter, is a respectful and pure conduct. Which totally is in harmony with everything that he said up to this point about why he is writing this letter, right? I'm writing this to you, the believers of the dispersion. You're you're about to go through... uh, Massive suffering. God intends it for sanctification, and it's going to involve submission. Right? I, I come speaking of backgrounds from a uh, a very uh, comfortable Baptist upbringing, and uh, I grew up my whole life with every sermon had to start with you know all the words had to be alliterative, and all the points were also. So if you were if you were an old school Baptist pastor, this would be uh, sanctified submission in suffering, right? That would, be, that would be the sermon title and every point would begin with us and, and somehow that would help us to remember. Uh, but he here, you know, th- think about where you've already been, right? Uh, what's the point of the letter? As you come to him, a, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And now in chapters 2 and and into 3, he starts showing us what those spiritual sacrifices look like. And in marriage, God is ordained for the respectful and pure conduct, right? Those are uh, priestly adjectives, right? You don't want a disrespectful, impure priest bringing sacrifices. It's not going to work. So you need a respectful and pure priest. And and God uses submission to accomplish uh, the respectful and pure conduct of both spouses when the lady submits. Why? Why is submission, according to Peter, inherently respectful and pure? Well, we, we know that having our souls purified to obedience for the truth, that we ought to have sincere brotherly love, loving one another from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And God laid out in creation order that the love, the proper love shown from a wife to a husband is submission, therefore that's what love from a pure heart looks like for a wife. We we know, by the way, that uh, the opposite of that is innate in ladies' heart from the fall forward, Right? Genesis 3, 16. God looks at Eve and says, Because of this sin, your desires will be contrary to your husband's. You are going to be hardwired in your fleshly nature to not want to go along with his plan. That's what it says. And... It's interesting. I, I, I was blown away by this this week thinking about it. I should have studied this idea more. Uh, but there's two main apostles that, that really talk about marriage a lot, right? It's this text here, Peter, and Paul. And we know something about both of them. One, that Paul was not married. And two, that Peter was and there is no uh, better text, I think, at understanding the inherent sinful dynamics of marriage than this text right here. Right? It's, it's, it's like it's written from a man who's been married 40 years, talking to his wife, and says, do you remember the first 20 years where this was just your go-to Response for how to work through this issue, and she says yes. And do you remember the first twenty years where this was your go-to response for how to work through these issues? And they say, yeah. Let's remind people don't do that, right? And you know, as someone on the on the cusp of that twenty-year pivot, I, I hope uh, I, I go, oh yeah, this this looks pretty natural, right? Peter gives three sets of of arguments both for the negative and the positive of what this submission looks like for ladies. First of all, he talks about their adornment. Some some translations say, don't let this adornment be merely external, which I think is probably wise, uh, both given the Greek and given Our confusion about the argument, right? Verse three: Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Um, There are all kinds of misinterpretations to this verse. The first being, ladies should not braid their hair and put on gold jewelry, right? I mean, that there there is no consideration um, or ability to have a a sanctified desire to. Uh, appear appealing. Well, he says, don't worry about the clothing you wear, but obviously he wants us to wear it, right? Um, so it's, it's not as if these things don't exist in Peter's world. Um, it's that they are not the focus point. Which I, I think means he's arguing that this is a tendency, right? This is a the fallen man go-to track that is within our fleshly desires, especially for ladies, to, yeah, let our adorning be external, primarily external. And he says, let your adorning be internal, right? The hidden person of the heart. Now, we have a culture that simultaneously broadcasts two conflicting messages, right? One is that, you know, beauty is beauty, everything is beautiful, right? And also, hey, look at me on Instagram, right? I mean, those are the two, we got both of those things going at the same time. uh, And that, that message makes no sense. But Why? Why did God design us to not be um, external adorners? What, who's, where is it said, or why is it that we are made in such a way, both men and women, I'd argue, that our adornment should be internal? Well, I'd, I'd argue two reasons, and they're right here in our text. One, external adornment is fleeting, right? It doesn't last. And internal adornment can be imperishable, right? Look at what he says. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's, That's my first reason. Second, it is impossible to have the focus of an external adornment to be glory of God, right? I'm not saying we can't glorify God in what we wear, right? We certainly can. I'd argue that we can do dishonor to God in what we wear also. But there is a imperishable option that is far greater which is the way that we relate from the heart. For ladies, a gentle and quiet spirit shows who it is that you are out to glorify. External adornment, you could be out to glorify any number of options, including yourself, right? your husband, your, your culture at large, you know, whatever your favorite brand is, there's, there's innumerable options for who we might be out to glorify with our external adornment. But if you have, ladies, a quiet and gentle spirit, it's clear who you're out to glorify. Because that is radically different from what your inner sinful self wants to have and from what everything in our culture tells you. You ought to have a gentle and quiet spirit. Paul or uh, Peter says, "It's beautiful." The second set of uh, what to do and not do relates to obedience. What an interesting example. This example of Sarah, right? The Old Testament uh, holy woman who hoped in God and obeyed her husband. You know, the only time, and Peter's example of obedience is calling him Lord. Uh, I'm not advocating for that, by the way. All right. Okay. <laughs> that, is, that is not where I'm going. Um, The only time, though, in the Old Testament that she calls her husband, Abram, Lord is when she's laughing at his plan given to him by God to conceive a child in old age, right? So even in her her deference to Abram's plan, She's laughing because she thinks this guy has got a terrible idea, right? This is is not how this is going to work. But all right, Lord, let's do it. Um, What what an odd example for Peter to use. Clearly showing he is not saying that our obedience or that a a lady's obedience should be in measure to the expedience of her husband's plan, right? Right? We don't just obey to the plan that we'd already want to go along with. That's neither obedience or submission. That's just doing the same thing that you wanted to do. This goes back to verse 1 where he argues that this peaceful and, and quiet spirit this gentleness can actually have the effect of changing the heart of an unsaved husband without even a word. Right? What is, what is Peter's argument there? Well, I, I think he's probably saying we know what a lady's first instinct is for how to change her husband. Right? Oh, I can explain this to him. <laughs> right? Oh he, he's just not getting it. Let, let me explain this to him. Yeah. I, I can tell I don't need to go any further. Right? <laughs> this is I mean I, I think what I see in in many I mean, many situations of marital discomfort, even within the body of Christ, as I, as I encourage this covenant to grow stronger together, there is such a desire for godly ends through sinful means, right? Through old person means. Husbands. They want to just strong arm the relationship into their idea of of health and vigor. Ladies, there is within us, or within you, a desire to say, I don't know why he's so pig headed. I'm going to talk to him until he gets this. (laughs) And Peter says, "I, I don't. I think that's old man, right? Do this without a word. I don't think, by the way, that the only thing that can change is for the husband to go from unsaved to saved. He's just using the most drastic example. I, I, I say that because I, I know that it's true. Experientially, right? Right? that the sweet submission of a wife can change a husband. And that every fiber of our old selves, husbands, is programmed to not want to hear what they have to say. So there is a a dual problem at play here that is every bit as much the husband's problem as it is the wife's. Right? Wife wants to win it through talking. Husband's don't want to talk, right? And both of those unsanctified desires within our hearts can ruin covenant relationships. The third picture or action for the sanctified, submitting wife is fearlessness. Right? What is it, ladies, that causes you to want to speak up, to change your husband? It's fear. And Peter says, you'll be like Sarah if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. He talks a lot about fear in in 1 Peter. He talks about who to fear and what not to fear. And interestingly here, He says, don't fear a thing that really is frightening. That we we are instinctually afraid of how a spouse might wreck our own well-being, our children's well-being, our covenant relationship, and that that drives us to seek this and through unsanctified means. But we have something greater to fear, right? Not our husbands, not our spouses, although they can be genuinely frightening. (laughs) I want to just... I'm going to pivot to men here in a minute, but I do want to make a, a caveat here because I don't, again, I don't know the, the context or the backgrounds of, of marriages, relationships, anything in this room. Uh, and, I, and I do know that the ideas of submission, as godly and as objectively true as they are in God's Word, are also opportunities for twisting. And I just want to say, what what biblical submission is not and ought not to be within the body of Christ is any kind of enabling of abuse, of abandonment, of unfaithfulness, And that to the church's shame, that's a common message. Just stick it out. Well, I would tell you, stick it out, right? Hear me out, though. We we see a counter-reaction, I would say, over the last 60 years, 70 years in the church of a blind stick-it-out that comes from seeing the absolute opposite in our culture, which is let it go whenever you want, right? And as the body of Christ, when we look at pictures of marriage and and we see that this is a covenant first, right? That it's not going to be always driven by love and good feelings every day. And we want to We want to preach and teach the truth that this is meant to picture God's love, Christ's love for the church, and that this doesn't quit easily. All of that is true. But as the body of Christ, we also have a responsibility to look out for our sisters, to not allow their submission to be trampled on by cheaters, liars, and abusers. It's a serious part of loving our sisters. Verse 7. This is interesting, right? Peter again says, Likewise. But there's no be subject to, right? First one is, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Well, that's easy enough for us to see the logical progression of, right? You've got uh, be subject to governing authorities, slaves, be subject to your masters, likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands, likewise, husbands. How, what is the likewise here? He doesn't say be subject. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I think there's there's two senses in which this is like his argument to ladies. First of all, it's the exact opposite of what men want to do, right? That's a likewise in the same way that, that women may be prone to let their adorning be external and for their interactions to be, um, tramp, or, uh, to be tinged with a verbal desire to disobey and for it to be full of fear, husbands have built into them in their sin nature, thanks to our dad Adam, that we would not live with our wives in an understanding way and that we would not honor them as the weaker vessel. It's just built in. Boy, if you're, if you're married less than 10 years, looking to be married in the next two years, 10 years, hear that now. Right. The earlier you understand that your innate, built-in, coping mechanisms for the sanctifying fire of marriage are sinful, the quicker you'll be able to figure out what it looks like for this to actually be sanctified. And it took me a long time. <laughs> no amens. <sighs> what does it mean to live with your wives in an understanding way? Well, for me, again, it's, it's helpful for me to think about the opposite. Uh, and I, I think maybe I'm even specially Prone to the opposite. Uh, that I am not by nature an understanding person. In fact, I, I think for the first 30 years of my life, I basically thought everyone else was just a somewhat modified version of me, right? Like we're all people and I'm a person, so everyone else must basically be like me with some minor differences, Man, that is an unhelpful anthropology, right? That is not the way to view people, uh, for the record. And it's terribly inaccurate. Uh, And one of, if not the best way to understand how different people are is to be married to one, right? And you spend You know, the first three years thinking, okay, we're kind of the same. She does that a little differently than I do. She thinks about that a little differently than I do, but we'll get her there, right? (laughs) And then, you know, year four to seven, you think, whoa, she is not getting there, right? (laughs) What? We got to change the curriculum. And then like you're seven to ten, you think, oh, she's not getting there because there is not where she should be. Right? She is a different person. Totally different. And I didn't even know that I was agreeing to love a different person ten years ago. But here we are. And she is very different from me. I think that is rampant. In men and marriages, right? Just, just to not even see, like, oh, she is just not me. And, and by the way, once you see that in, in your marriage, you start to see that in your friends, in your, in your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, you go, oh, that's not just like a modified version of me. That is someone who is totally and uniquely different from me. And that I'm not better in my making than them. I'm not worse in my making than them. That they are just radically different in what drives them, both for good and for bad, um, what their giftedness is, and how that uh, helps them to both love the body of Christ and to be prone to different sins than me. And that one of those very, very different people is someone that I am in a lifelong covenant with. And, like it or not, man, you have a special calling here, right? See, wives, I'm speaking in broad terms here, wives don't need to know that. They, they knew on day one that you were a very, very different person from them, right? <laughs> That's why they were trying to change you with words, <laughs> like, do you get this? And we're going, what do you mean? You're, we're all just on the same page, right? But not only do they not need to know <laughs> that you're different, um, it's not their primary role to account for your difference in your marriage. That's your job, man. You... Live with them in an understanding way. What does Paul say about this? He he uses metaphors, uh, which I think are, are helpful in Ephesians 5, right? He says, love your wife like you love your own flesh, right? Like you love your own body. Because nobody hates themselves. But they do the thing that they think is best for themselves. Now you're supposed to do that for her. right? That your marriage is an opportunity to take who she uniquely is and to make that your life and in so doing, you honor her. What does he mean that you do honor to her as the weaker vessel? Well, this, this idea of, of vessel, if you think about other uh, times when it's used in the New Testament, it's almost always talking about our bodies. Right? Second Corinthians 4, we, we have this treasure. Uh, Paul's talking about um, being ambassadors and, and having our, our minds and our hearts unveiled to the truth and knowing the, the sweetness of the gospel. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, right? And despite the growing cultural Argument that there is no inherent difference in our bodies. We're not going to see co-ed Olympics this year. We've got lines getting blurry all over the place. But Peter says, in the same way that your physical body is stronger than hers, God intends for you, stronger vessel, to honor the weaker vessel. And I think we get here to the heart of why there is such a cultural confusion about. Um, God's beautiful plan for differences within genders, right? Because our, our cultural argument today is that if anything is weaker than anything else, it is inferior to the stronger thing. And no one is inferior to anyone else. Therefore, nothing or no one is weaker than anyone else. Right? That's a logical argument, two propositions and a conclusion. And the, the fallacy is not that no one or no gender is weaker than another gender. That's the, fail, that's, that's the proposition that our culture is attacking. Right? We say, okay, if weaker means inferior, then and nothing is inferior, then we must not be weaker or stronger than one another. Right? Men must not be stronger than women, women must not be stronger than or weaker than men. The problem is the false proposition in that argument is that weaker means inferior. Does it sound, when, when Peter speaks in words of cherishing, honoring, understanding, that he's assuming any kind of inferiority because of weakness? No, weak is not a pejorative term. It, it almost never is in the New Testament. Why? Think of, think of Paul. What does Paul say? About weakness over and over and over. When I am weak, I'm strong. That's right. It's not when I am weak, I am immediately made less than someone else. No, it's that all of us are inherently less than someone else. All of us are weak. It's all relative, right? And in marriage, God set it up to be a beautiful thing. To say, this party in a special way represents my Provision and headship and care for my people. And this party represents the beauty and fragility and understanding. And that's my plan. Weaker is not inferior. And men, we have the beautiful responsibility of honoring a weaker vessel in our marriages. It is not God's plan for us to go along with the idea, well, that it, it, if weaker means inferior, let's just tell everyone. She's as strong as me. That's that's not God's biblical vision for marriage. You lose the fact that this pictures Christ's love for the church. You elevate the church to Christ at that point in your strength, right? That's not God's plan. That's not the vision. This is a holy covenant made to picture something greater. And we lose the picture when we lose our calling to honor and understand our wives. It's interesting that Peter, again, as I as I mentioned at the very beginning, points out doctrinal implications for these applications, right? We already, we already mentioned the first one that he he tells women that this peaceful and quiet spirit can actually be a uh, salvific, uh, saving power within your husbands if they're unsaved. And a sanctifying power for those that are. That's not a small thing. If you believe that your husband could be more sanctified than take your role seriously. Men, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I wonder if that even scares us. I wonder if we even realize what a serious threat that is. That God is saying the dynamic of the relationship of marriage is so important to me that if you get it wrong, it impacts the dynamic of your relationship with me. If that doesn't scare you, that doesn't give you the right kind of fear, then you must not understand how important prayer is. I don't mean to steal next week's thunder, but verse 12 of chapter 3 reminds us from Psalm 34 that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The Psalms are full of that. There is this, all throughout Scripture, um, both cause and correlation between righteous living and prayer, right? That that to, to, to pray and to care about praying requires That you care about righteousness. And that oddly, to pray means that you will care about righteousness. Right? There's this dual correlation, dual causation thing happening here. But there is no more specific threat than this one. If that is concerning to you, good. But also, to both parties, consider our example. Unsurprisingly, Jesus. The example of perfect submission. I came to do the will of the Father. Father, if you can do anything, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Let that encourage your hearts, ladies. Submission in the face of suffering. Men, what Peter is calling you to Is sacrifice. That to form a new vision for how to love your body, which actually means how to love your wife, is deep sacrifice. Of course, what you're giving up is temporal. And what you're gaining is an heir with you to the grace of life. What a privilege. Think of him who sacrificed everything to gain heirs to the grace of life. You see that all comes back to our calling as priests, a royal priesthood, willing to submit, willing to sacrifice, willing to live respectable and pure lives so that both our relationship to the Father is unhindered, as are those who we minister the truth of the gospel to. This affects not just your spouse, but the Gentiles that that Peter tells us to live undefiled lives in front of. How often it is that I see uh, the example of a Christian marriage do incredibly great things to unsaved, struggling people. Sadly, the converse is also true. Why is it that unsaved people know there's a problem? Something is, is off kilter when a Christian marriage breaks up and dissolves. See, we don't want to, the world doesn't want to think about this as a covenant ordained by God, but when it falls apart, they know, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. That shouldn't have happened. I thought that they were This. Marriage is a a massive marker and signal for good or for bad of what it looks like to be living for the temporary or the eternal. How much you care about your calling as a priest and how deeply the reality that you have been eternally called out of darkness and into his marvelous light actually impacts the way you live. It is not easy. Marriage, okay? It is not easy. It's one of the world's great ill-serving ideas. Right? Love is all you need. You need a lot more than that. You need a, an eye on the eternal, a complete willingness to sacrifice and to suffer. And to see the seriousness of a covenant relationship that reflects God's love for his people. This is not normal. It wasn't normal in Peter's day, although the issues were totally different. And it's no less unusual today. But for those of us with this high and holy calling, what a privilege to have marriage as the opportunity to willingly suffer, sacrifice, submit, and love another person. If none of this Sounds appealing to you, and you're going to hold on to the idea that you're going to love your way out of this, you're missing the point. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, turn to Jesus. Be willing to suffer, be willing to sacrifice be willing to submit. It's part of our high and holy calling. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We have no hope in bucking off the old person, the old man, the outer flesh that's fading away without the certain hope of Jesus. Father, we need him in our sight so that we can love our wives like Jesus loves us. So that we can submit to our husbands like Jesus submitted to your perfect plan of redemption. Father, help us to take our calling as priests seriously now and forever for your honor and glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vintage Faith Podcast. At Vintage Faith, our vision is to help people who are far from God to become totally devoted followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast brought you closer to God. For more information, check us out at vintagefaithcicero.com.